This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. That this will be a weird fall for sports is beyond question, but there is a larger question yet to be answered after these seasons happen, hopefully after this virus is over, which is whether some sports will be changed forever by what is happening now. Ann Killian is the multi-award winning sports columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle. And good to talk to you again. How are you doing? I'm good, Gil. How are you? I'm fine. It's a weird thing to watch, and you wonder what effect it may have in the future, though, and what college football players, in fact, all college athletes, think of their standing at their schools. To watch college players being made to go back to play games that include huddles and piling on top of one another while those same schools tell students the campuses aren't safe enough for classes. Yeah. um, Of all the uh, interesting sports that the pandemic is affecting. I think college football is is the most interesting. I think this pandemic is an accelerator for a lot of trends in our society, things that were probably going to happen anyways. And I think that what we might see happen in college football was probably something that was a long time coming. But but I think this is just ripping off the the facade of you know, these are student athletes, quote unquote, that they're just like regular students, but they happen to play sports for the school. Um, you know, that, there's a lot of hypocrisy in college football. And, and I think that the coronavirus is, is it, it going to expose it. And one of those hypocrisies is that these athletes are not treated like other college students. And when we see what's happening at North Carolina, where they shut the school down and said, uh uh-uh, you know, we've had all these outbreaks, we're going to send everybody home, we're going to do all our learning online, except for the for the football players, we're going to keep them here. And of course, you know, football makes a tremendous amount of money for schools, um, for, for the power five schools. And so, you know, that's why they're, that's the motivation um, is, is to keep that revenue coming. And this exposes that. This is one of the things colleges don't like to talk about publicly a whole lot, but they need to now in order to try and get alumni and other people to fork over some cash. There's big money in this. Each school gets tens of millions of dollars, including money from the Rose Bowl, the college football playoff, the NCAA basketball tournament, which of course was canceled a few months ago. I mean, this some people think is going to back up the claim by student athletes that, look, we're professional people making money, millions of dollars for people. We should get paid. Yes. The the phrase that schools like to toss around a lot and always have is, you know, we put our students' health and safety above all else. Well, clearly that's, that's not happening in the case of the schools that are going to try and forge ahead. The Pac-12 and, and the Big Ten 
decided to postpone their seasons and the other three power five conferences are trying to go forward. And I just, the only thing that we've seen that works in this pandemic is caution. And so I applaud the the conferences that are are stopping and taking a reset and, and waiting to see what happens. Because I mean, let's be honest, we, we only have eight months of information about this disease. And so we're getting information in real time. And a lot of it is disturbing. And a lot of it does show that there can be long term consequences for for young athletes. And I think that a lot of athletes, as you pointed out, a lot, a lot of the college students are, are understanding that they are pawns in this. They're not, it's not about their health. It's not about their safety. It's not about them being like other students. It's about them helping the, the, keep the schools afloat, keep the athletic departments afloat, keep the other sports afloat. And so I think there is a real power in that. And I, and I think we're seeing groups starting to organize. The Pac-12 players started to organize. Big 10 players, the, even the, the phrase that a lot of pro college football people have jumped on, the hashtag, we want to play, people saw that, but a lot of people failed to read the rest of the statement, which was a call for protocols around health and safety, was a call to organize a college football players association where the players would have more power. College football has been in this kind of struggle for a couple of years now where the the money is so much. The coaches get paid so much. There's so much money, and the players are not sharing in it. Yet they are, you know, workers basically. One of the arguments for college football programs and the millions of dollars spent on on coaches and and everything else, when you bring it up to the schools, they say, "Well, now hold on. Yes, we put a lot of money into." football primarily, but it brings a lot of money in and that supports other athletic programs. And in fact, Stanford, which cut its sports program for the year a month ago, also announced it's going to discontinue 11 of its 36 teams after the next academic year. Yeah. And and there's no doubt that at many schools, football does fund everything. Now it's a myth that college football universally funds things. Sometimes college football can be a real drain on a university. Further down the line, that could have a big impact on the Olympic movement because a lot of these are so-called quote-unquote Olympic sports and a lot of very fine athletes that compete in the Olympics come from universities and university programs. So um, that you know, that could have a far-reaching effect. In pro sports, it's been interesting to watch what's been going on in the WNBA with a lack of other sports on. They've been selling put women's sports on TV shirts. And uh, even in the NBA bubble, their orange logo hoodies have become huge sellers. But they've also been changing the player-owner dynamic. Some of this is because of political considerations. WNBA players have united against one of the part owners in the league, Senator Kelly Loeffler, a Republican of Georgia, who's tried to silence them on issues such as Black Lives Matter. And I wonder if how much of this seeming lack of concern in some places for players either to say what they believe or their health is also going to have some permanent changes in that player league, player coach, player team relationship in the future. Well, I think I think that's um, something that is coming out of this interesting intersection of pandemic and social justice movement that's all been happening in the last few months. Um, 
I, I think players, um, we just talked about college football players feeling empowered. I think players feel empowered. Um, I think it's something that has been evolving over the last couple of years. Um, and clearly social media plays a big part in that. Um, you know, players, athletes have always, many athletes have always felt like they had the, the right or the obligation to speak out um, on issues, but only until recent years have they had the kind of platform and reach where they can do it themselves without having to use the megaphone of, of mainstream media. So I, I think uh, the WNBA, I mean, the NBA gets a lot of credit for doing a lot of things. And of course, you know, here in my area, we had Colin Kaepernick who, you know, took, took a high risk position and ended up losing his job over it. But um the WNBA has been on the forefront of the Black Lives Matter movement since since early on. Um, they were actually the first. And so it's just interesting that this woman is a part owner of a league that has been, you know, for want of a better word, woke um, through its entire existence. And yet she wants to, at this very pivotal moment in our in our lives, wants to silence the players who who work for her. Um, and it just, it's, it's a, it's a weird fit. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. Obviously the NBA was successful in removing a very problematic owner in Donald Sterling a few years ago. I don't know if there's going to be any kind of movement to do this. I, I don't really know why she is a part owner of a team that, that she doesn't really seem to respect a lot. Um, so it's, that'll be interesting to, to keep an eye on what happens, but I do think a lot of players, athletes in all different sports are feeling an obligation at this moment. Um, you know, many of them realize they are some of the most high profile black members of our society and, and that they, they are role models and that they do have a voice and that they, um, you know, they want to be heard. So I, it's been really interesting to see the messaging coming out of both the bubble of the NBA and the wobble of the WNBA in terms of, um, you know, using the platform that they have. Ann Killian is the award-winning sports columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle. And sports may change forever out of this. I guess we will wait and see. I thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Gil. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. The first of the two political conventions is over, and just as the Republicans will this coming week, Democrats had to do it differently than it's ever been done before. How did they do for their candidate? How did their candidate do? And how much might conventions change forever after this, virus or not? Major Garrett is the chief Washington correspondent for CBS News and host of the podcast, The Debrief. Major, good to talk to you again. Great to be with you. Let's start with the politics. Whether one supports him or not, that was the Joe Biden Democrats were hoping for. And in the decades I've been covering him, I think it was flat out the best speech he's ever made. And that's what you have to do when you become the nominee of a major party. Give the speech of your life, especially when you've tried this twice before and failed spectacularly, as Joe Biden did once in 1987 and again in 2008. So this is a moment when you have to tell the country, not only with your words, but the way you bring yourself, the way you hold the moment, I'm ready. And former Vice President Joe Biden did everything he could 
within the very real limitations of a convention where there's no convening. And we'll get to that, I know, in a moment, but no audience, no feedback from thousands of supporters cheering your name, lifting you up. You have to create all of that energy yourself. You have to hold that energy within yourself, convey it to the country through a flat screen. It's not the easiest thing in the world to do. And for Democrats, putting this convention on first was not just an acid test of their political messaging. It was an acid test of their creativity and their ability to technically present something to the country under very unusual circumstances. And I know internally they feel they did as good as they possibly could because this is a completely different format. And in the end, they know they have a party that is unified because they consider President Trump and his possible re-election an existential threat. So a lot of internal disputes that might otherwise have captured a lot of attention didn't this time. And with that, progressives say, you know what? Joe Biden is a decent man, and he is an honorable person, and he is someone who's had a long career in public service. Is he the progressive we want? No, but he's a decent progressive. And that has, I think, mended the party together in a way that positions it well for the fall campaign. Yeah, I don't think there's a lot of old fashioned swing voters left out there. I think a lot of people are kind of cemented in place. But one thing Biden got done is probably to fire up enthusiasm among Democrats, many of which were not so sure about him. That's going to help them maybe not move Republicans over, but help them in turnout and raising money. Precisely. If you talk to Democrats, as I do with great frequency, what was their big concern about last night's speech or the Thursday night speech? The big concern was at some point, former Vice President Biden would stumble or he would sort of get wrapped around his words in an awkward way and have a hard time getting out, which they feared wouldn't necessarily mean he's any less qualified for the high office of the presidency of the United States, but might feed into this narrative that the Trump campaign has been pounding on for the better part of two months. That is to say, there's something wrong with Joe Biden. He's not quite with it. He's not quite there. And the Biden campaign, the Democratic National Committee knew he had this one opportunity, this look-in audience, probably the most sizable look-in audience he will have again until the debates come to try to answer that and put it to rest if possible. Most Democrats I talked to subsequently believe he did. And there was something else along those lines of people talking about the way Biden speaks. And I knew, and you know, because we've covered him for so long, it had nothing to do with age, with whether you like him or his candidacy or not, because I remember 30 years ago asking Joe Biden questions and the answer would take like 40 minutes to come out when he was a young man. But he may have been upstaged by an important part of this messaging by a 13-year-old, Braden Harrington, who talked about how Biden helped him with his stutter, a problem, of course, Biden also had when he was young, still battles to a degree. And I think in terms of explaining that background on Biden, they not only humanized him, but also they made a star of a 13-year-old kid. A very courageous child. Um, I can't imagine having to do that at age 13. And I didn't grow up with a speech impediment at all. And he did. And he was, by any stretch of the imagination, there's simply no partisan framing for that appearance. None. That's an American child trying to get better at something that is difficult for him. Every single American can understand that in some way that is specific and relevant to them. It doesn't have to be a speech impediment. It's any challenge you confront in your life. And to get a helping hand from someone as prominent and visible as the former vice president in that context, not just gave this idea reinforced by many other voices. And I don't think anyone disputes these voices who said, you know what, Joe Biden talked to me. He called my grandmother. No one doubts that really, uh, fundamentally. 
And this one boy, this one child, this one 13-year-old, Braden says, not only did he display a kindness, he reached down in a very specific way that is helping to change my life for the better. Now, does that make you a great president? No. Does it make you a good human being, someone that you might, if you're casting a vote at a time when you think the character of the presidency and how one orients one's humanity to the presidency matters? And polling data, Gil, certainly indicates that's on people's minds. Is it a decisive factor? Guess what? We'll find out. We'll find out. We'll come back to Braden when we talk about whether we ever want to go back to regular conventions. But let's finish up on politics. What became clear during this unconventional convention is the Democrats realized one of the main things that went wrong in 2016 is they got three million more votes, but in the wrong states and did not get the turnout they took for granted among African-Americans. And they realized, as I think the lineup for the Republican convention coming up shows as well, that this may be less about changing the minds of swing voters than it is about turnout. You could not watch this convention without almost hearing Democrats thinking out loud, if we had had the turnout in Milwaukee, Philadelphia, and Detroit we had in the Obama years, we would have won that thing. Exactly. They know that to be a mathematical and a deeply depressing political fact. But guess what? That falls on the party that did not motivate its own base voters. These things are accountable in politics. When you don't do your job, when you take people for granted, or if you don't take them for granted, make they f- make them feel as if they're being taken for granted, that's on you. That's your fault. That's missing something that is bedrock foundational to successful political campaigns. Democrats are not going to make that mistake again. Plus, they also, in addition to trying to say to those voters, don't sit this one out, don't assume the polls are correct, don't assume this victory is in hand. Not only that, but there was a concerted effort to tell Republicans who may be reconsidering a Trump vote in 2020, having cast one in 2016, you have permission to reassess. And we're not telling you you were dumb to cast that vote. We're not telling you you were something wrong with you about your political views then. We just want you to take a look at this alternative. That, I think, on the persuasive side, was about as effective as they could be. One interesting thing, not much remarked upon, Bill Clinton. Here we had this politically successful two-term president, and I watched him during this convention, and he was like a knickknack that you find in a box that you may be wondering why you brought it along when you moved, and should you find a place for it, or should you just give it away? It was like his backing of welfare reform, the Defense of Marriage Act, letting conservative Dick Morris into the White House, and of course the whole Monica Lewinsky thing just doesn't have anything to do with this Democratic Party. It does not, and it's funny how far he has gone. Remember in 2012? President Obama described him as the secretary of explaining things, the person who could put complex issues in the most basic, understandable, and persuasive format. He is someone you have to include, but it felt, I agree with you, Gil, as if he was included because he had to be, not because necessarily people wanted him to be there or wanted him to be the most prominent, full-throated voice of this new Democratic Party. He is a successful two-term president, no question about that. And he does represent a kind of forced bipartisanship. It really wasn't organic. It came after Republicans won control of the House and Senate, but it was bipartisanship nevertheless. Joe Biden's career flows through that. But there was a much greater effort to say there is something more about the Biden progressive possibilities than about the Clinton past. Interestingly, you have an almost mirror image over in the Republican Party with another politically successful two-term president, George W. Bush. And I'm not even sure we're even going to see him in the coming week. I highly doubt it. I do not expect to see George W. Bush giving any kind of uh, even welcome or taped address on behalf of this re-election campaign. It might happen, but it would be very surprising to me. And I don't think the Trump campaign believes it needs it. 
And I think he would prefer not to have it. There is something very specific and direct about the Trump approach, which is it's my way and you can either come with it or reject it. But those who come with it know why they're there. And we're not going to spend a lot of time trying to extend our arms beyond that reach. The reach is enough. It got us here once. It'll get us there again. Missing from this Democratic convention were working class white voters. I expected to see a coal miner from Pennsylvania saying Trump promised to make more jobs and coal plants. It didn't happen. It was very short on the kind of previous union Democratic voters that went for Trump in the last election. It was like Democrats were almost throwing in the towel on that voter. A little bit of farmers, a couple of auto workers, but not much. Uh, to your point, they did not put their shoulder up against that wheel and really try to turn it hard. I'm not saying they've given up on that, but I think they're trying other methods of quieter, gentler persuasion. And what they did try to do was reach out very directly to those suburban Republican voters, predominantly women, to say, you know what, this is a time where other things are at stake that are larger than maybe your immediate economic destiny. The pandemic has created a whole range of anxieties, and we have some better solutions and better plans and more concerted focus on that than the incumbent. The underlying polling data suggests that is a place to go hunting for votes. Democrats tried. Well, we've talked a lot about the politics of the Democratic convention. Let's talk about this unconventional convention, the one the Democrats had, the one that the GOP is about to have, as we continue talking with CBS Washington correspondent Major Garrett. That's coming up on America, Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross, and we're talking about the Democratic convention that we just had and the Republican convention that we're about to have with Major Garrett, the chief Washington correspondent for CBS News and host of the podcast, The Debrief. This would have been my 14th as a journalist, 13th actually assigned to the convention. I've been saying for years in terms of seeing old friends and making contacts, they're wonderful, but as news, nah, not that much. The virus may, as it has with so many things, moved up a reckoning that was long coming accelerated a reassessment of what had grown to be a very stale format that was repetitive beyond explanation or rationality. I agree with you, Gil. It is a great place to sort of touch base with people and reconnect and expand your portfolio of contacts, contacts rather, journalistically. But you can do that now via Zoom 100 different ways more efficiently. You don't need a convention to do that. And much of the work had already been done. There wasn't and there hasn't been for decades any kind of contestation at a convention where the outcome is anywhere close to being in doubt. And after we are on the other side of this pandemic, which at some point we shall be, I don't believe we're going to go back to a four-day convention. I don't believe we'll ever have a roll call vote the same way we used to have them. I believe the Democrats created at least the beginning of a new template to reimagine that very process and to reimagine the ways you engage locally through technology. I think that's going to be one of the after-action things both parties are going to look at from this virtual convention format. Oh, I think if only for the Calamari guy from Rhode Island, I never want to sit through a regular convention roll call again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, 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 uh, 20 years from now, there might be a political science to scientist who's trying to get a PhD who will write a doctoral dissertation about the calamari guy and that being a hinge to a new future of virtual 
roll call votes and using locality to speak to a larger American constituency. There's something else about about the way people spoke. I'm not sure at a regular convention, a Braden Harrington really gets heard. I'm not sure Joe Biden can give that kind of speech. One of the best things about this is it allowed politicians to talk like actual people. Usually at conventions and on the campaign trail, we get candidates yelling at a few hundred or thousand people to fire them up while the microphone that broadcasts that yelling to millions of people in their homes makes it sound like they can't connect. It killed Howard Dean. There was a huge difference between Hillary Clinton yelling to a crowd of supporters and just talking to them as she did in Brooklyn the night she got the most delegates from the primaries to win the nomination. I wonder if anybody wants candidates to go back yelling at a crowd. Well, they will have some of that because politics is a human touch business. There has to be that dimension of it. Will it look differently? Will you apportion your time differently? Will you say to yourself, you know, I could get on a flight or I could get on five Zoom calls. What's more efficient? What allows me to connect more, raise more money or touch more voters and inspire people to register to vote? Do I need it? Do I genuinely need to fly across the country or back and forth seven or eight times? Maybe not. And the other thing I think to your point, Gil, which is really, really important. You've seen this. I've seen this at conventions. Being in that room affects people differently. Walking up to that stage for the first time, that vast podium, seeing all the lights and seeing all the people on the floor, either paying attention to you or frequently not paying attention to you. It's a hard room. But when you're in your own home, in your own room, and you know you have the freedom to kind of take a second take, and they use some of that a couple of times. Uh, is it on? Am I here? What? It's okay. All of that created a little bit more of comfortability, certainly with those who are giving their presentation. And I think for the audience, it kind of humanized it as well. Again, I think that's going to be a template. We're going to see more, not less of that in future conventions. We have a question here for you, for me, question for journalists. These two conventions, Democratic and Republican, are going to get a pass because we are in the age of virus. If they were to stay virtual as these conventions are, and, and I don't think they totally will, right. uh, getting everybody together, whether it's backslapping or, or contact making or reassuring people from various states of their importance, I think is still going to be an important thing for both parties. But the audience for the Democratic convention, anyhow, seems to have been older. That seems to be something that's kind of, you know, happening more and more every year. Of the viewers that are there are maybe more likely to vote because they're older, but young people are mainly going to see tweets, Instagram memes, maybe grab one speech or appearance on YouTube. In other words, the impact of watching these things beginning to end will probably never be the same. No, it won't. And we are still miscounting the way people are viewing these events now, Gil. Our industry is uh, kind of still surprisingly behind the times in evaluating itself and evaluating where the audience wants to be found and can be found. To your point, streaming, viral notes, things that are passed around, things that create a meme by themselves or are amplified at the margins on social media, that's the way a significant part of the American electorate is interacting at its own deference, time, place, and technology. And they're not in the main relying on certainly the television networks, the cables to a certain degree, but this other atmosphere of streaming and social media amplification is where I believe the political rubber is meeting the road. And we're still a little behind the times in terms of accounting that, accounting for that, assessing it and measuring it, because that's where a larger and larger part of this audience can and will be found. And I think there were moments about this Democratic campaign that were directed entirely for that world and not remotely for the television audience viewing on a national network or even a cable network. Major Garrett is the chief Washington correspondent for CBS News. He is host of the weekly podcast, The Debrief. 
Major, as always, informative and a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Something happened that was almost lost in the convention in American political hubbub, and that was what was trumpeted as a major agreement between Israel and the UAE, an Arab country, the United Arab Emirates. What does it mean? Is it something altogether momentous or meaningless? David Makovsky is an expert on the U.S.-Israeli relationship of the Washington Institute, director of the Project of Arab Israeli relations, also former senior advisor to the U.S. Special Envoy for Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. He is as well the host of the podcast Decision Points. David, it's good to have you with us. How are you? Delighted to be with you. This is interesting because this was almost unexpected and seemed to happen because the original United States plan for Israeli-Palestinian peace just kind of fell flat with just about everyone. That's correct. I think if you would look to any of the key figures on this deal, uh, and re- rewind the tape till January of this year and say the peace plan of the president is not going to be well received. Uh, it's going to lead to the prime minister of Israel wanting to go in a different direction regarding annexing parts of the West Bank, which will also meet with fierce opposition equally. But that led to 3.0, and that is not peace between Israel and the Palestinians, but, but Israel between Israel and the United Arab Emirates where there's an increasing strategic convergence between the two countries as it relates to key issues on the regional landscape. Namely, they jointly believe that Iran is a nefarious actor, and they also believe that there are certain jihadi movements out there that are out to destabilize the Middle East. Let's get to the deal itself, to the nitty gritty of this, you know, shortly expressed. Egypt and Jordan obviously did peace agreements with Israel after losing wars to them. Those were practical life and death reasons for both countries. So actually, what is this? Because the UAE has never been at war with Israel. And as you point out, there's no territorial disputes here. So what is this deal? This deal is a way of bringing together the the technology interests of the Emirates and Israel. Uh, the, you know, the Emirates, has they have sovereign wealth funds over a trillion dollars. Israel has a ton of high-tech startups. Uh, the Emirates itself has its own spaceship to Mars program. There's a whole technological dimension, but there's a geostrategic dimension too, which is these are two countries that fear growth of Iran, and they want to really limit that, curb it wherever they can. And I think it could be also not just you know, a bilateral piece, but I think it could hold out the hopes of, you know, being a bridge to really re-energize stalled Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking, even though the Palestinians are kind of in shock over this and fear that this is coming at their expense, when I think the truth is that this should this could help jumpstart what has been long stalled negotiations. Well, let's talk about what this specifically is, though. Israel we are told, will stop annexation of the West Bank. But Netanyahu went back on that almost immediately, called it a temporary hold, even if he's not going to go ahead with annexing the Jordan Valley. But he's also saying there's no cause for any more land concessions. It doesn't make this sound like it's a first deal, at least as far as the Palestinians are concerned, but the last one. Anybody else who jumps onto this, Oman, Sudan, whoever else, Bahrain, comes in on this, will be essentially signing on to this deal. So if this is only a temporary hold, 
Is this only a temporary deal? Well, it's a good question. I I tend to believe though that the from and from what I'm hearing on on the Arab side that you know that the Emirates have a commitment from Trump even for a second term not to recognize annexation. Of course, Prime Minister Netanyahu has every interest in terms of his own domestic politics to mollify his right-wing critics and to say, you know, you've given up the, the ace card here and he could say no, it's just temporary. But I think that is from what I hear, this is very much, it's 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 not, it's off the table. I mean, I think they know, first of all, as, as Netanyahu himself said, for, for annexation to work, it only means anything if the U.S. recognizes it or else it opens up Israel to sanctions. He says this on the record. And he knows that Biden isn't going to recognize it because Biden's on the record of being against annexation. And I think, you know, it's it's over. And uh, this, this annexation is just not going to happen. So I... I think this is one of the things they got. I think also, look, let's put it in in kind of an American domestic political context too, which is leave aside Israel for a moment. And that is, if you're the Emirates, what do you see? You see two big developments. You see a president of the United States who is like running for his political life to get reelected, and it's an uphill battle. He does not have many achievements in the Middle East. He's killed some key terrorists, that's true but he has no diplomatic breakthrough. This is the first diplomatic breakthrough. And I think he, the Emiratis believe that in return for giving Trump the diplomatic breakthrough that they want. So I think if you're just thinking in terms of the cold political calculus, that calculus, um, the timing could not be better for the Emirates in a bilateral context with the United States as well. We haven't talked a lot about the Palestinians. You mentioned them earlier. If they can't find a deal they can approve, and if some of the other Gulf states start to jump in on this UAE deal, the Palestinians may find themselves fairly isolated. No, I think you're raising an important point. Look, the thing is, is that what we need to do is to really rethink kind of classic paradigms. 2003 was when you had something called the Arab Peace Initiative, which was based on this premise. Give the Palestinians whatever they want. If they get what they want, then at the end of the road, a prize for, for this will be peace agreements. In other words, the idea is that the premise was kind of that the Middle East is more stagnant, that there's no converging interests between Arab states and Israel. And therefore, we're going to help leverage the Palestinian position by saying, you know, if the Palestinians get what they want, then come to us. What's changed in 17 years, however, is the Middle East itself, is that in 2003, you didn't have ISIS. You didn't have uh, Iran uh, being in all these different Arab capitals. You didn't have, um, you know, cyber as such a key component of, of, of the intelligence world. Uh, there's a lot of different pieces here. And what we see, I think, with the Emirates is we've waited for 17 years on the Palestinian uh, dimension and it hasn't been forthcoming. We don't want to wait anymore. So I think the mistake is to look at it as zero sum and to say this is a bypass road. Uh, against the Palestinians. I think I prefer to see this as a bridge, to see it as a way of saying, okay, now you've got one of the most influential Arab players on board itself with peacemaking. Let's see if we can use that to jumpstart these long stall talks. And I, you know, this I feel is, is a hope. If you look at the Egypt-Jordan pieces, they actually became more engaged uh, in trying to widen the circle of peace after they joined uh, as opposed to beforehand because they didn't want to be politically exposed. They wanted they didn't want to be alone. They wanted others to come in. In the case of the Emirates-Palestinian relations, they've been frosty for years. 
predates this issue completely. It has something to do with uh, the Emirates hosting arrival of uh, Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, a guy named Mohammed Dahlan. I think this is a way to jumpstart. And that instead of cursing the Emiratis, you have to coax the Emiratis. You have to find a way to get them now saying, okay, now you're kind of got skin in the game. You've got your own peace with Israel. Now you have to be a key uh, player in helping getting the Palestinians engaged. So I think instead of looking this as zero sum, we got to think out of the box. We got to reassess the old paradigms and find ways to create new ones that this is not a bypass road, but this is a bridge to really jumpstart these stall talks between Israelis and Palestinians. We're going to finish on that note of hope. David Makovsky is an expert on the U.S.-Israeli relationship with the Washington Institute, former senior advisor to U.S. Special Envoy for Israeli-Palestinian negotiations, and for much more background and history in that 3D chess game known as Middle East diplomacy, he is the host of the podcast Decision Points. David, thank you so much for being with us. Delighted to be with you. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. A century ago, America did change forever because until then, in a country that called itself a democracy, what is now a majority of its citizens, 51%, could not vote. CBS News Washington correspondent and moderator of Face the Nation, Margaret Brennan, marks the anniversary of the 19th Amendment. This week marks the 100th anniversary of women obtaining the right to vote. As we commemorate the moment, we remember they weren't given the right, they fought for it. Adding a single sentence to the Constitution, the vote shall not be denied on account of sex, took decades. Amid a pandemic and devastating world war, suffragists like Alice Paul picketed the White House, endured jail and a hunger strike. A scandalized Massachusetts congressman implored Washington to ignore the, quote, nagging of iron-jawed angels, dismissing suffragists as bewildered, deluded creatures with short skirts and short hair. But they persisted. So did Carrie Chapman Catt, a savvy political strategist who went state to state swaying local legislatures to ratify the 19th Amendment. They reached the critical 36 states on August 18, 1920. Days later, the amendment, named after suffragist Susan B. Anthony, was adopted. And suddenly, more than 20 million women were able to vote in the presidential election that was 11 weeks away. We often think of enfranchisement as a natural democratic evolution. But it wasn't easy to convince men to share power. It was a bare-knuckled fight swirling with sexism, racism, classism. Those were the forces that former slave turned activist Sojourner Truth took on decades prior. Suffragists also faced opposition from fellow women, some of whom believed it was unnatural to be involved in politics at all. I wish I knew how my great-grandmothers felt. I do know that by the time Mary McNamee Brennan walked into a Hell's Kitchen voting booth in 1924 for the first time, she'd already taught her husband to read and write and buried two of their six children in the pandemic. Life was not easy, and for women of color, the 19th Amendment was just a start. The Jim Crow barriers that kept blacks from fully exercising their rights were not dismantled until 1965. 
This week, for the first time, a woman of color joined a major party presidential ticket. Joe, I'm so proud to stand with you. And I do so mindful of all the heroic and ambitious women before me whose sacrifice, determination, and resilience makes my presence here today even possible. Senator Kamala Harris joins a handful of women who have sought the highest office in the land. There are now a record 127 women legislators on Capitol Hill. That's progress, but not parity. The Equal Rights Amendment, first drafted back in the 1920s, still hasn't become law. And the fight for a more perfect union continues. CBS News Washington correspondent Margaret Brennan. This has been America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull, I'm Gil Gross. Some puzzles are hard to solve. Others are hard to prove. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Access episodes early and ad-free with 48 Hours Plus on Apple Podcasts.